I have a really bad horror story of um, doing a lot of market research on Amazon while logged into my mom's Amazon Prime account. <laughs> and she got on, like, the next day, and she was getting all these, like, you looked at butt plugs. You might be interested in <laughs> these under-the-bed restraints. And my mom's like, Polly, I can't get on my Amazon account at work now because of all the things that are popping up. Hello and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline, and that was the tenacious Polly Rodriguez. She's the co-founder of the sexual wellness company Unbound. And one of a growing number of women, founders, designers, and engineers who are claiming their space in today's booming $15 billion sex toy and sex tech industries. Even if it sometimes means haunting your mom's search history with butt plugs along the way. And Caroline, talking to women like Polly makes it feel like vibrators are no big deal to own. I mean, back home, she's the talk of the town. You know, it's funny. At first, I think people were really shocked and they were like, wait, you're doing what? And they were so nervous to ask me about it or to talk about it. And then I think when we started to get more mainstream acceptance, when I go back to St. Louis now, everyone's so proud and excited to talk about it. And the thing that I've realized, be it my personal family from St. Louis, my conservative high school friends or people I just randomly meet at events, is that everyone's dying to talk about this and this being sex, sexuality, vibrators, lubricants, all this stuff, people are so curious and they're so desperately seeking permission for someone to say it isn't weird. But the fact that curious folks are buying up, yes, billions of dollars of sex toys these days is honestly the least interesting part of the story, Caroline. Oh, totally. I mean, as Polly's journey into the sex toy industry is going to show us, there's so much that we as allegedly liberated consumers just don't see behind the vibrator scenes. You know, the biz behind the buzz, if you will. Yeah, because as Polly quickly learned, being a boss babe with vibrator career goals means navigating an obstacle course of prudery, sexual double standards, and a whole lot of dicks who only look at female sexuality and pleasure through a male gaze that's policing us all. So in this episode, we're along for the wild ride with Polly, all to find out what does it take to cut through the barriers and buzzkills standing between us and the good vibes we deserve? In other words, how do we free the vibrator? Okay, Kristen, before we meet back up with Polly, let's lay out how vibrators became our bedside's best friend. And just a heads up to listeners that, yes, humans have, in fact, diddled themselves with DIY dildos since forever. And there are all kinds of sex toys to tickle all kinds of fancies out there today. But for this episode, we're focusing on vibrators. Which are not recent additions to our nightstands. Although the earliest ones sold around the turn of the century weren't exactly discreet, probably could not fit in your (laughs) nightstand. You know, like, oh, uh, don't mind that saddle-looking contraption over there. Uh, Nothing to see there. Yeah, she's not kidding. But discretion wasn't such a big deal because when vibrators were first invented in the 1880s, People thought that vibrations had all sorts of legit healing powers. 
So typically, they'd be advertised as treatments for headaches, constipation, even hearing loss. One called the Vibratile was marketed as a health and beauty device, something that could help you get rid of wrinkles and nervous headaches, Kristen. (laughs) It's very goopy of them. (laughs) And on many models, you could buy attachments, whether for the peen or the vagine. Mm, But unfortunately, the more folks realized that vibrators were also a super (laughs) efficient way to masturbate, you know, with your peen or vagine attachment, the more discreet we got about our so-called personal massagers. You know, even in the swing in 70s, when the first feminist sex toy shops were opening, there wasn't much love for vibrators out there. Yeah, one paper we found from the 1974 Journal of Popular Culture side-eyed vibrators as, quote, masturbatory machines for sexually dysfunctional females. I'll still have what she's having. (laughs) Vibrators' side-eyed reputation continued. In 1991, the first ever nationally representative survey of American sexual behavior found that just 2% of women between 18 and 59 years old had bought a vibrator in the past year. I know. And only 17% rated the very idea of using a vibrator as somewhat or very appealing. But not so anymore. By 2015, a comparable survey found that around 60% of women had ever used a vibrator, with roughly a quarter of those gals having used one in the past month. So what happened between the early 90s and now that turned us on to vibrators? Sex in the city, that's what. Even though social media didn't exist when the show premiered in 1998, its ninth episode made vibrators go viral like never before. Especially one high-end device in particular that Miranda introduced at brunch. Years. Men are going to be obsolete anyway. I mean, already you can't talk to them. You don't need them to have kids with you. You don't even need them to have sex with anymore, as I've just very pleasantly discovered. Uh-oh, sounds like somebody just got their first vibrator. Not first ultimate. And I think I'm in love. Oh, please stop. This is so sad. Come on, I'm not going to replace a man with some battery-operated yeah, device. you say that, but you haven't met the rabbit. Oh, come on. If you're gonna get the day after this episode aired, we read that women were lined up in San Francisco outside of the sex toy shop Good Vibrations to buy their own vibrators. And they were hunting for a rabbit. Overall sales of that specific vibrator hopped up 700%. But many parts of the country didn't have a feminist sex toy shop like Good Vibrations. Parts of the country like where Polly grew up. I come from St. Louis, Missouri. So I grew up in an environment where this was a category that most of the shops were on the side of the highway uh, next to a gas stop um, or gas station. And so um, I had my own personal experience of uh, shopping in the category and just feeling really Mortified. I mean, I ended up at uh, a Hustler Hollywood that was right next to the airport, and I walked in, and it was, like, all these plastic mannequins that were in, like, onesie stockings with, like, the crotch cut out. And I was just like, what the hell? (laughs) Yeah, Caroline and I were reminiscing about the college town where— we met in uh, Athens, Georgia at UGA. Oh, yeah. Bulldogs. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) um, there's— the store that I can remember where I first saw, was aware of vibrators was just kind of like this funky houseware store. And if you went <laughs> oh, upstairs, yeah. 
you just follow the scent of incense to the upstairs and behind the beaded curtain, you could see it was the 18 and ah, up space yeah. where you could see the vibrators next to all of the shitty bongs. Kristen, I know exactly what weird story you're talking about, and I won't forget that either. But anyway, Polly's first sex shop experience wasn't all a joke. At 21, she was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. She underwent chemo and radiation, which also induced early menopause. And if you've listened to our episode on how to survive menopause, you know that comes with a lot of vaginal dryness. So a good friend recommended that Polly go buy some lube. Yeah, so I walked in, and I just felt so embarrassed and mortified. I had, like, a chemotherapy pack. I had an ileostomy bag at the time, which is for—I had colon cancer, so I had a resection. And I and I weighed maybe, like, 95 pounds. And I walk in, and there are all these, like, big dudes that are, like, reading. like Because they also have a magazine section where they have all the adult magazines. And, you know, there's some guys in there reading those. Like, in what world do you want to read that in public in a store? I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, like— quickly bought some lube and like a cheap little plastic pink bullet vibrator that was battery operated and quickly kind of just scuffled out of there. And it was, yeah, it was not a good experience by any means. So after a few years, Polly had graduated from college. Her cancer was in remission. Then she embarked on a pretty kick-ass career in strategy consulting, but corporate life wasn't for her. She climbed the ladder at a dating startup, but that wasn't really a fit either. So Polly started exploring what else might be out there. And one day she got a clue when she was on a plane ride to Alabama. I looked around and there were two women on the plane of completely different demographics reading Fifty Shades of Grey out in the open. And I was kind of like, holy shit, like this is a book that's about BDSM and kink and like pretty advanced sexual uh, interests. And here are these women on this flight to Alabama reading this book out in the open. Like what is happening? What was happening was that the sex toy industry was exploding. And Polly wasn't the only one to notice. Back in New York through a Women in Tech Facebook group, Polly was introduced to a fellow Midwesterner named Sarah Jane Kinney. Sarah Jane had already started her own small online sex toy company, but she was looking to take it to the next level. Polly had the business, marketing, and strategy skills she needed, and the pair hit it off and hit the ground running. I think that there are a lot of women, for one reason or another, are just out there searching to try to figure out, you know, like whether you're not enjoying sex or if sex is painful or you're having trouble orgasming. Like the options out there are not great. I mean, I think they've gotten better um, over time, but um, it's still a little bit of a, like a black hole and a black abyss when it comes to trying to figure out what products you should buy. Polly and Sarah Jane knew they could do it better, but... Before they could hatch a business plan, they had to figure out the lay of the land. I remember we got our hands on this market research report. And, I mean, we had to scour the, like, you know, the whole earth to find actual data on the industry because it's such a, a shadow economy industry. And so basically there was no brand name that was kind of owning the space and that the demand had always been there and that, um, you know, women had always bought these products, but that no brand name had ever been able to emerge for a myriad of reasons, both on the supply side as well as on the demand side. Um, I just, I remember after reading this report, I couldn't sleep for like that whole week because I was like, oh my God, like we could do this. Like we could make a brand name in this category and like one has to exist. Like, like 
women are using these products. They're amazing. How can there not be, like, the equivalent of, like, Trojan, but more elevated and and for women? So that's exactly what Polly and Sarah Jane decided to do. In 2014, they launched Unbound as an online shop for rule-bending women, which, side note, Caroline, very unladylike, a.k.a. it was an online sex toy shop. Unbound got its start selling other people's products, thousands of them, and they took notes. Over the course of the first two and a half years, we sold, you know, close to 2,000 different products. And by doing that, we saw, you know, what were the motor features women wanted? What were the colors, speeds, price points, um, attributes? And by doing that over time, we realized that there was a massive opportunity for us to take all these learnings and create our own products. Normally, I hate a spreadsheet, Caroline, but I am loving this series vibrator intel. Totally. And once they had that intel, they hired a rad lady biomechanical engineer to turn those ideas into actual physical products. And Unbound's all-women team mattered. Because for a prime example of how the male gaze has shaped our sex toys, look no further than how they've been designed. For 70% of women, they need clitoral stimulation in order to orgasm. And so certainly dildos are a tool within a wide range of products that one can use that works for some women. But the vast majority of them need clitoral stimulation, which most effectively can come in the form of vibration. Um, And so to us, it was kind of like, why do they have to look like penises? Um, Do they have to look like penises? And I think what we found was that overwhelmingly, no, they do not. Nor do they have to come in IRL penis colors. Yeah, shout out to Cal Exotics, which was the first women-owned sex toy manufacturer founded in the mid-90s. And their all-female product development team brightened up the vibrator palette with pastels. Another big shift in this dude-dominated industry. Yeah, though it's not just the toys themselves that have needed a makeover. Yeah, I think we all felt the same way, where you would go and you'd shop and you'd look at the covers of some of the products and the packaging. They'd come in and be some some woman who had ginormous boobs, which that's great for her. I'm really happy for her. But, like, I don't really—and, you know, like a little waist and full face of makeup and four-inch heels. And I would say the vast majority of women I know would look at that image and say, I, I do not identify with what this woman looks like, so this product must not be for me. And I think we all feel that way, where if, you know, you see something and you don't relate to it, then how could you possibly want to buy it? So Polly saw a business opportunity. She pursued it. She got the right team. Unbound starts designing its own cool vibrators. What could possibly stand in her way, Caroline? Ah, Kristen, we're going to find out after the break. We're back talking about vibrators in the sex toy biz with Polly Rodriguez. When we left off, she'd found this huge opening in the market, and that is not a euphemism. No, it is not. There was clearly this huge demand for the products, but hardly any women making them. The vibrator and adult industry have always been run by men. Same goes for the VC investors who Polly was pitching to raise dough for Unbound. 
fundraising is the worst. <laughs> and I'm I'm transparent to a fault about what fundraising was like for me. Um, it took me two and a half years to raise our seed round. I've pitched Unbound over a thousand times. I've seen I've received hundreds of rejection emails. Um, and so it takes just an absolute like sheer willpower to not give a fuck what anybody thinks and and to not let the rejection get to you. Not giving a fuck is easier said than done because Polly has an awesome product that she knows there's a market for. So Caroline, why would she have problems fundraising? Well, not to sound like a prude, Kristen, but obscenity still stood in her way. And we mean obscene in the literal legal sense of the word. Yeah, we got to revisit some vibrator history real quick. Because in the 1860s and 70s, vice societies were in full swing. Conservative Christians had launched these groups to promote morality and eradicate porn, abortion, dildos, basically anything else they deemed obscene. Yeah, and the Comstock laws, named for joyless vice society leader Anthony Comstock, made those efforts at repression official. So, for instance, ads in men's sporting journals that had once hawked the 19th century equivalent of dildos and fleshlights now called them old maid's friends and bachelor's friends. The great irony, of course, is that right in the middle of Comstock's crusades— electric vibrators at the market. Remember your saddle, your awkward saddle in the bedroom? (laughs) But the loophole was that as long as dildos and vibrators and whatever else you were putting wherever else were billed as marital aids or medical devices, they're not obscene. Totally okay. In other words, if it was used to assist married heterosexual monogamous penis and vagina intercourse, rather than serving as threatening solo sex man replacements... You could get a pass or like a literal doctor's note. And Caroline, you can't fully free the vibrator when Comstock's legacy remains. Like lots of states still have surprising regulations on vibrators. In the early 2000s, Texas law stated that if a device was designed primarily for genital stimulation, it was illegal. Plus, you couldn't own more than six sex toys because that could get you charged with intent to promote. <laughs> cool. So like a sex toy dealer. And, you know, these laws were not kidding around, y'all. In 2003, police in Burleson, Texas, busted a church-going Republican woman in a sting operation for being a so-called smut merchant, i.e. selling sex toys to her friends. Bananas. But there are always Comstock loopholes with these laws. Like, you could get a vibrator in Texas if you had a, quote, bona fide medical, psychiatric, judicial, legislative, or law enforcement purpose for owning one. Great. Yeah. So long as you weren't using them to actually get off, I guess it's okay for women to use them. Yeah. Well, you know, no more than five at a time. Right. (laughs) By the way, Texas finally struck down its sex toy snoopery in 2008 for violating citizens' right to privacy. Imagine that. And Kristen, you know, we were laughing just a second ago about the whole smut merchant thing. But honestly, when Polly was pitching her company, a lot of people made her feel like she was some sort of lascivious smut merchant. One thing that I sensed in reading about some of your experiences pitching was kind of an undercurrent of... Slut shaming. Mm-hmm. Was that was I reading too much into that, or was that an element that that you experienced at times? Yeah, I mean, I th- 
I, it's, oh God, I've never had anyone just straight out ask it that way. Um, you know, yes, I think that I, I dress, I try to dress very conservatively because I do think that people have a preconceived notion of who I'm going to be when I walk in the room. And I do think that a lot of investors in the early days before we were as credible as we are now would ask me to meet them at bars, um, would act like it was kind of a date. But yeah, I mean, people definitely made a lot of assumptions about who I was. People would just be like, well, why are you doing this? Are you like some like sexual fiend? Like, are you like, you know, some like slut um, that just has like all these vibrators and is obsessed with masturbating? And it's kind of like, no, <laughs> I'm just a smart <laughs> businesswoman who thinks that there's a huge opportunity. Um, and so that was why I started sharing kind of when I would pitch, I would tell people about like, oh, I went through cancer and menopause and none of my doctors talked to me about it. And that's why I had to shop in this category. And I started to realize that when I started sharing that story, people were more accepting, which is bullshit. Like, I shouldn't have to go through cancer to want to, want to buy a vibrator. Caroline, it's like the Comstock loopholes all over again. As long as you're kind of broken, it's cool for you to use a sex toy. <laughs> right. And what was really disheartening for Polly was that it wasn't just men who were making these kind of slut-shamey assumptions. When I would go and pitch older female VCs, and not all of them, they were some of the most um, painful rejections because they wouldn't even take a meeting with me. Like, they wouldn't even hear me out. And at first, I was I was just so angry because I was like, you're supposed to be on my side. Like, you're supposed to be the one person in the room that, like, gets it. And I think with time, what I realized was that, you know, only 2% of venture funding goes to women, which is abys abysmal. Um, but also only 9% of venture partners are women. I think those women are fighting the same fight that I'm fighting. And they're just so desperate to succeed because they are also the minority um, that it is hard to go into a room of all-male partners and bang on the table and say, we need to invest in female sexuality and vibrators because they've worked so hard to get to where they are. I think they're terrified that by doing that, it'll damage their reputation. I don't agree with that, but I think with time, I've realized that's the perspective that they're coming from. They don't want to be labeled as, oh, you're a female investor, so you invest in like, you know, um, consumer products for women, like makeup and products for your baby. And I think female VCs are trying to fight all of those stigmas. And so they don't want to take meetings with the girl that's like the vibrator company. Um, with the exception of the younger female VCs, um, we have um, several female uh, VCs that support us now, but they're younger. They're closer to my age in their 30s and late 20s. And um, they totally get it. With their help, Polly eventually raised $2.7 million to launch Unbound. Which is great, but it's still a drop in the bucket when you have generic Viagra startup brands Hims and Roman raising $100 million each in venture capital. And you've got Big Pharma spending $1 billion, yeah, that's with a B, $1 billion on a female Viagra drug called Addy. Yeah, and it definitely wasn't smooth sailing for Polly. She still had to deal with more kinks, no pun intended, when it came to basic functions for just running a business, like 
processing credit card payments. Yeah. So once Unbound was off the ground, a whole bunch of companies just refused to do business with them. Their QuickBooks account got shut down. Stripe, a software that helps startups take credit cards, rejected them. And Just Works, which is an HR platform, said they would not just work with Unbound. So Polly decided to do some claptrap research of her own. And what she found is that all of these rejections stemmed back to the banks. Yeah, it turns out that banks have Comstock laws of their own, i.e. morality clauses. Basically, if you're in the adult industry, which banks say is everything from lube to pornography to vibrators, then you can't bank with us. And Polly, being the won't-take-no-for-an-answer kind of person that she is, kept calling the banks to try and understand why those morality clauses are in place. She fought her way to a top decision-maker, and they dropped a history lesson of their own. In the 90s, there was a lot of, like, 1-900 numbers and a lot of services in which people would, you know, indulge in them and use them. And then when their bank statements would come, they would call up the bank. Well, their their wife or their significant other would get the bank statement. And they'd be like, what is this? Like, what is this 1-900 number? And they'd be like, oh, that wasn't me. I don't know. I don't know. And so then they would call up and they'd say, this wasn't ours. This is fraud. And so... The banks claim that that type of behavior resulted in a very large number of chargebacks, which created a large amount of inherent risk. Similarly, young teenage boys putting in fake credit card numbers to watch pornography. So let me get this straight. Basically, the reason that Polly couldn't process credit cards for her vibrator company was because married dudes and teenage boys couldn't stop jerking it in the 90s? God, this is the worst. I think the problem is the policies haven't evolved to reflect that that isn't our consumer. Our consumers aren't, you know, embarrassed that they're buying these products. They're proud. They're not charging back. Like, And I've offered every single one of these um, institutions to look at our all of our financials. I'm happy to share our bank account statements. I'm happy to share anything to prove to them that that is the case. And so what the real answer is, though, that I'm, that I'm getting at is when I offer that, they don't have any interest in doing it. Um, so I think that there are the reasons they provide, and then there's kind of this under, like undercurrent under that's that that is beneath all the 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 policy, which is that no one wants to champion sexual health for women. No one wants to die on that hill. No one wants to go into the boardroom and say, "Hey, we really should allow these vibrators to advertise or to use our bank accounts or to have to do to do businesses with us." And if they're not going to do it based on, you know, just ethics and integrity and morale, the only way to get them to do it is for us to make a shit ton of money so that they'd look like fools to not do business with us. Hell yes. Like Beyonce says, y'all, always stay gracious. Best revenge is your paper. But Polly still had a few more hell no's ahead. Unbound needed to spread the word about their sexy vibrator so they could start actually making some money. But guess what? Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat don't allow ads for so-called adult products. And since Google Ads classifies vibrators as non-family safe products, ads aren't allowed on YouTube or Google Shopping either. Then there's offline advertising. In the spring of 2018, Unbound had a run-in with New York's Metro Transit Authority when their proposed subway ads were rejected. And to be clear, Polly knew the MTA wasn't going to be gung-ho for Unbound, so she worked with a team of artists to create a series of vibrant, 
bold billboards that weren't overtly sexual. So think a brightly decorated bathroom scene, no nudity, and you kind of have to play Where's Waldo to even, like, spot the vibrator in it. Yeah, and the only text on there was the company's website. But the MTA said, nope, citing its ad policy banning, quote, dissemination of indecent material to minors and public display of offensive sexual material. To which Polly said, oh, hell no. Because meanwhile, the subway had zero problem posting giant billboards for one of those generic Viagra brands we just mentioned. The ad even said erectile dysfunction in big old letters with a cropped image of a guy's crotch. It's just such a poignant example of how accepted male sexuality is and how female sexuality is still controversial. In something as simple as Facebook's advertising policies, where it's like, oh, sure, Viagra, that's fine. Um, But a vibrator? Oh, we could never have that. Yeah, Caroline and I were shocked to learn about the social media platforms um, advertising restrictions, especially because condoms are totally okay. So even for a brand like Trojan, it's totally fine for you to advertise condoms because those are about contraception. But Trojan cannot also advertise its line of vibrators because that goes from contraception to suddenly, oh, you're not masturbating to make babies. You're there for sexual pleasure. Like, what is going on there? Yeah, that you nailed it. That is the policy. Um, I thought about this a lot. And I think because women can have technically have children and procreate without orgasming, um, female pleasure kind of falls into this, you know, no man's land um, where it's sex, to your point, it's it's the most blatant form of sex for the sake of pleasure, which arguably is the number one reason most of us engage in sex is for pleasure. And so vibrators are in that way seen as like these deviant products, which I just, to say that condoms are only used for family planning, it's just not true. I mean, I think because men have to orgasm in order to procreate, all the products that are associated with that fly under the guise of, you know, family planning and contraceptives. And I mean, we regulate the female orgasm more than we regulate guns in this country. And I just can't wrap my head around that. Polly's right. On Facebook, you can advertise bump stocks and gun accessories to your heart's delight. But vibrators are a no-go. Which is why some larger sex toy companies try to get around these rules by acquiring condom brands as like a sort of Trojan horse. (laughs) They can advertise those products to get people to their site. Again, so long as it's not used for getting you off but fixing some sort of quote-unquote problem, then we're good to go. I mean, and if we go back to the very beginning of this episode when Polly was telling us about how she wrecked her mom's Amazon search (laughs) history, it's actually kind of hard to sell vibrators on Amazon if you are an independent company like Unbound because you have to get pre-approval on Amazon by selling 50 units of something that is not a sex toy First, so another vibrator startup called Dame, in order to create their own Comstock loophole to get around Amazon's policy, sold 50 bumper stickers that said, my other car is a vibrator, so they could get pre-approval to start selling their actual products. I mean, this is ridiculous, Caroline. Also ridiculous, when we come back from a break, we're going to find out why a product that we put inside our bodies is not regulated by the FDA. 
Don't buzz off. Okay, so vibrators are clearly still wrapped up in stigma around female sexuality. Stigma that's really interfering with our ability to own our pleasure and get off. So, Caroline, how do we finally free the vibrator? Well, I think one of the first things we can do is look to our feminist sex shop forebears. You know, we mentioned Good Vibrations up top. They opened in San Francisco in 1977 with a mission to serve women and destigmatize sex and pleasure. Their whole business model was based around education. Like, they even shared their business plan with other women-run sex shops. For Polly, smashing the sex toy patriarchy is about changing the products and business models— And it's also about changing how we talk about them. Why do we infantilize female sexuality? Why do we feel the need to call them sex toys? Like, it's kind of gross. Like, in the same way that, like, you shouldn't call your—if you have a little girl, little boy, like, like, don't call their vagina their, like, woo-woo or their vajayjay. Call it a vagina. Call it labias. Call it what it is. Like, I think we tend to infantilize things when we're uncomfortable with them. And sometimes I wonder, like, do you think that it was named that way so that— to give it less power, you know, like how what we call things and the names that we give them is almost always about power. It sounds like something as simple and as silly as a name, and yet it's it's really powerful. As you might imagine, Unbound does not call themselves a sex toy company. So we call ourselves a sexual wellness company for a reason, and I really do believe that sexuality is kind of the last frontier in, on the wellness front. In general, if you present it as a health and wellness product, people will think of it as a health and wellness product. And so my fundamental belief is that you can take these products mainstream and make people comfortable with that in in your marketing approach. We've seen this shift towards wellness with all types of companies. You know, Headspace, Lola Tampons. It works. And for Polly, part of being a health and wellness company is giving folks knowledge about what we're putting in our bodies so that we can not only get off, yes, please, but also do it with healthy, high-quality products. Yeah, because, y'all, right now, vibrators are completely unregulated. A lot of these manufacturers have gotten away for a very long time with making pretty low-grade quality products that break and are cheap and selling them at really high prices and... There's a huge difference between silicone grades, whether it's off the shelf, which can have carcinogens in it, um, or food grade, which is what most people use but isn't intended for, you know, direct bodily contact necessarily um, in, in the way you use vibrators. And then there's the, the third type, which is medical grade silicone, which is actually intended um, to be used um, with the components of your body in the way that uh, vibrators are used. And so at Unbound, we only use uh, medical grade silicone. So because vibrators have been unregulated novelties for so long, people have been putting non-body safe silicone in their bodies. Plus, porous plastics can harbor bacteria. So even if it might be safe for interaction with food, it might not be the best to come in contact with our skin. And, you know, all of that said, more regulation might not exactly be the answer either. Getting something through the FDA is a really long and expensive process, a process that could hamper smaller startup companies like Unbound. Polly would rather take another route. 
What I'd really like to see is just an increase in consumer awareness in terms of educating our customers about what we're putting in our bodies and and reading labels and making sure that we're taking the time to understand who we're buying from and what we're buying, um, which I think is happening. Um, and I think it's really on, you know, voting with your wallet and and not shopping with the brands that are going to put carcinogens um, in the products you're using. And I do think that a lot of these female-led startups, whether it's Unbound or Dame or Maud, who technically are our competitors, but all of the founders of those companies are also my best friends. The products that those women are making are body-safe silicone and also are just so much more socially responsible um, in sourcing their materials and in how they treat their own team and how they're growing and, and all those things. So I don't know that it's regulation as much as it is just increasing consumer education and awareness uh, about what we're what we're buying. Caroline, I love that she's buds with the Dame and Maude founders. Like, it seriously sounds like a throwback to the feminist sex shops of the 70s. Yeah, and Polly definitely walks the walk. She even started this group called Women of Sex Tech, which, judging by the fact that their membership is 200 founders strong, points to a great future for our vibrators. So one thing Caroline and I were really curious about is how Unbound thinks about pricing and and why affordability is important to your business model. When you make something really expensive, you make it kind of like classist. And also it makes it so that sexuality is like you can only masturbate if you can afford this like, you know, $180 like Lilo vibrator. And it's like, no, you can like we all had the cheap, crappy pocket rocket, like (laughs) which, you know, we're probably like 25, 30 bucks. But to us, it was, well, why can't we make a version of that that's actually body safe, that is medical grade silicone, and it's $18 so that a, so that a young woman in college um, can also afford it because it's so important for women to be able to masturbate and understand what feels good to them um, before engaging in, in sex so that you can really, you know, provide consent, put informed consent, where you're like, oh, yeah, that feels good, or oh, no, that doesn't. The only way to know that is by uh, exploring yourself. Well, this makes me think a lot about not only younger women, but also just the lack of sex ed. And I'm curious if you hear from younger women or even from moms of younger women that often. Uh, I love hearing from moms of younger women. Um, like, those are, like, I am not a religious person, but They are doing God's work. (laughs) To have your daughter's sexual pleasure in mind and to prioritize that as a mother instead of being afraid for her and sheltering her from it and trying to hide the reality of it, like shoving it, you know, under the rug and trying to hide it in the corner. I I think that that is so important. The world would be way better if we gave every 16-year-old a vibrator so that one, we're telling them that they don't have to be ashamed to have sexual urges and and to feel that. And two, that like there are ways to explore that and and enjoy it that that are healthy and normal. Do you feel like we're on our way to freeing the vibrator from our societal ladylike hangups? Yeah. Well, it's so funny, right? Like all how the trends change so much. Like now I feel like there's such an emphasis on self-care and 
dry yourself that bubble bath, girl. Like, you know, read some Rupi Car, and and I love Rupi Car, so I'm, <laughs> I, you know, like whatever. But um, it's interesting how I think that there's been a huge shift towards like really prioritizing self care and like what does that mean to us as women, especially when we look around at like the political climate. It's so important that we like create space for ourselves. My favorite thing, my favorite email in the customer service inbox is when somebody writes in and they're like, I have to buy a vibrator for my best friend or my sister or even my mom. Like, I love to see women encouraging other women in their sexuality. Like, that is such a powerful um, notion that we can give each other permission to be sexual um, and we don't have to judge one another. And so I am hopeful. I am I am hopeful, but I continue to just be shocked by um, how systemic and how deeply rooted uh, the institutional barriers to freeing and liberating the vibrator and, and women more generally are. Well, on the flip side of it, I will say that the idea of masturbating as an act of political resistance. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah. I I mean, what if we just all protested by using vibrators and we're like, we're not going to sleep with you guys until you give us equal rights. We got our vibrators, which is every, like, man's literal worst nightmare um, and a little bit of an extremist view. But I feel like uh, if things keep going the way they're going, maybe masturbation and vibrators as a form of protest is a viable option. I mean, at least we'll be reliably orgasming. <laughs> True, true, which is more than we can say than for the status quo. <laughs> Caroline, I don't know about you, but Polly's got me wanting us to start a vibrator revolution. I love it. I mean, I'm all in. Could we free the vibrator in the same way that the whole free the nipple took a stab at the male gaze? You mean like hashtag free the nipple campaign that was like, hey, our nipples, whether they be breastfeeding or simply hot that day, are not inherently sexual, you know, and perhaps we could hashtag free the vibrator because this isn't just about how we look at vibrators. But I mean, think about the subway ads. Think about the banks. Think about the laws that are looking at vibrators and female sexuality at large and saying, you, madam, are obscene. Mm. So to that we say, fuck you, hashtag free the vibrator. All right, so now that we have our free the vibrator mission, tag us on social at Unladylike Media. We want to hear all of your good vibes, or bad. Email us at hello at unladylikemedia.co. We've also started a Spotify playlist that pairs perfectly with this episode. It's called Feeling Your Unladylike Self, and you can find it on Spotify by searching for Unladylike Media. And if you have suggested songs to add, tell us, because P.S., it's a playlist for masturbation. <laughs> and this is our final 2018 episode. But don't worry, we're going to be back in your earbuds in January. So make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in your favorite podcast app so you know when new episodes come out. You can keep in touch with us over our little winter break by signing up for our newsletter. It's a dose of good news about women in the world delivered to your inbox every Wednesday. And there might be some episodes you haven't heard on Stitcher Premium. 
That's where our bonus episodes live. And right now, we've got one with our favorite feminist bookstore owner. Get great ideas for decking the shelves for all sorts of unladies on your list. Go to stitcher.com slash premium and use code unladylike for a month of free listening. And for our next bonus episode, we need your help. We want to know what your unladylike New Year's resolutions are. So call our hotline. It's 262-8-GAL-PAL and let us know. And, you know, if you're voicemail shy, you can also email us. And you can also read our book, Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. And we've got limited edition signed copies for sale at podswag.com slash unladylike. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Okay, Caroline, so before we send off our listeners with our rallying cry to hashtag free the vibrator, we do have a fun tip to share that we learned from Polly, which is in order to test the strength of a vibrator, all you have to do is touch it to the tip of your nose. I mean, obviously you can, you know, touch it to a clitoris or something too, (laughs) but like (laughs) if you're in public or in a podcast studio. So here we go. I'm about to touch a vibrator to my nose. I've never done this. Oh, oh. oh, oh! I'm scared. I'm scared to touch it to my. Put it. Put it on your nose. Okay, here we go. Whoa! <laughs> Don't sneeze. Listeners, I can say uh, that this product uh, works. Powerful. Yeah, I think my nose. Uh, I think my nose just came. <laughs> Stitcher. 